Good evening. It's good to be together on this Lord's Day evening. It has been a good day. We've had good fellowship. We have worshipped our God, and we are thankful for your presence tonight. I know that we have several people that are visiting from the area, and we are glad that you have come to be with us. We hope that you'll let us meet you and greet you. A few things before we begin tonight. The books that we have referenced several times, that is the Know Your Bible book, we have, uh, they have arrived, they are in the foyer. I had maybe 40 books requested, and so I said, I'll just go big, and I ordered 80. And there are 11 left at the moment. And so if you want one of those books, uh, you need to get them. And there were 11 left when I came in. There may be fewer than that now. Uh, the book regularly, I think, is $22.95. They're about to go up to $24.95. And in buying 80, we got them for $12 a piece. It is a big, thick, hardback book. It is absolutely worth $12. And I'm planning to do some preaching from it, but it is also a good book just for your study to help you understand the Bible. So I encourage you to get that. I was also thinking about uh, the Evergardens and what uh, Justin and Megan have ahead of them. I got off of active duty Air Force in 1994. And we moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and I started the Memphis School of Preaching. I had been in college. I had served in the military. And I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown at the Memphis School of Preaching. It was, uh, it was a tough school, and I'm sure it uh, still is. And so they've got some um, uh, vigorous things ahead of them, and we wish them the best as they're starting school. I was also thinking about uh, Ryan Smith and his family at this time. And what they're going through, I remember us going through that with both uh, Sherry's mother and father. And uh, we've made reference several times that she is in uh, very bad condition. But of course, we mean her body is in very bad condition because her spirit is almost home. And in a sense, we can be envious because she will soon pass from this life escorted by the angels to what she's been looking forward to for all of these years. And we can take comfort in that. All right, questions and answers. We've got uh, quite a few questions tonight, and we've got some good questions. I really do appreciate them. So let's jump right in. Question number one, when, and let's see, here we go. When does the Holy Spirit indwell a person and how? You know, there are certain subjects that I get a lot of questions about, uh, one of them is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That one by far would tip the scales. The other is the Holy Spirit. When and how does the Holy Spirit indwell a person? I want to say first that I don't believe that this is a fellowship issue. I have studied this for years. I've got some dear friends of mine that do, do not agree with me on this. And so there are primarily two views in the brotherhood when it comes to answering this subject. The first view is, some believe that we receive the Holy Spirit when we are baptized, and that the Holy Spirit literally comes and dwells in us uh, like your soul dwells in you. They base this on Acts 2.38, where Peter said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is believed that when you were saved, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and that the gift of the Holy Spirit is actually the Holy Spirit Himself. And that when you are baptized, 
You receive the Holy Spirit from that moment. A second view is that the Holy Spirit indwells us today only through the Word of God. Now, the people that hold this view would look at Acts 2.38, Repent, be baptized for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They believe the gift of the Holy Spirit there was referring to the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that was taking place that the apostles had just received. And so they interpret this to mean the apostles were saying to them, Peter specifically was saying, we, the apostles, have just received the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. If you repent and are baptized, you also will receive miraculous abilities. They would say that this is parallel with Mark chapter 16, when Jesus said, Believe and be baptized. Whosoever believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and these miraculous signs will follow them. They say it's the same thing. Repent and be baptized. You'll receive the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. He that believeth and is baptized will have miraculous signs that follow them. And of course, later what we see in the New Testament is many of the first century Christians did have miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, to figure this out, I think we need to ask some questions. The first question we need to ask is this. What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit at the time that this statement was made, at the time that this passage was written. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for two purposes. Number one, to reveal the Word of God miraculously, because they didn't have a New Testament. And number two, to confirm the Word of God miraculously, to prove that it came from God, to reveal and to confirm. Secondly, we need to ask, what would these words have meant to the people to whom it was originally spoken or to whom it was originally written? That is, repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How did they interpret that? Now let me just put it in context. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus told his apostles, this is the chapter prior, Jesus told his apostles, go into Jerusalem and wait for power from the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they begin to speak in tongues. They begin to reveal the message and they had miracles. The revealing was a miracle and they had miracles to confirm it. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, the people inquired, what meaneth this is what the King James says. That is, what's going on here? Peter says, this is Joel chapter 2 where God said he was going to pour out the Holy Spirit and you and your sons and daughters would do miracles. Then, in verse 38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What would they have taken that to mean at that point? Jesus promised power from the Holy Spirit in the previous chapter. The apostles received miraculous power from the Holy Spirit. Peter cited what was happening and said, this is the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit that's coming on you. And in verse 38, are they going to interpret that to mean the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in a non-miraculous way and dwell in you? I just don't think it fits the context. I can't envision that they could possibly have interpreted it that way. In the New Testament, the purpose of the Holy Spirit was always to reveal and to, cut, to confirm the Word. That is the work that He did, and He always did it in a miraculous way. In light of that, my view is that virtually every passage that you read in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit is miraculous. Why? Because that's His view. 
Now, is there a sense in which the Holy Spirit works through the Word today? Of course there is. Sure there is. I want you to think about this. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit revealed the Word miraculously because they didn't have a New Testament. The hearers would hear that Word, and then the message would prick their heart, and they would respond to it. The Holy Spirit did not miraculously work upon a person's heart and make them become a Christian. The Holy Spirit miraculously revealed the message. People would take it, they would ponder it, and then, through their own intellect, that message would convict them. Now, whether the message is being spoken miraculously or whether it's written down, the message is the message. And Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So today, the Holy Spirit's message is written in the Bible. I read that same message, and the Holy Spirit still works on me today through the same message. He was speaking it then. It's written now, but the Holy Spirit's still working through that same message. Now, the question says... Now, question number two is also related to this. What does it mean then to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And it cites Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Let me read this. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What does that mean? Be filled with the Spirit and sing psalms to one another? First, we could ask this, what does that mean to us today? Is there a sense in which we can be filled with the Spirit today? Sure there is. The very next chapter, this is Ephesians 5, the next chapter, which is just a few verses later, says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. And so, the sword, the tool through which the Holy Spirit works, is the Word of God. So as I wield, as I use the Word of God today, it is the message of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit was speaking and active. Today, what we have is the record of what the Holy Spirit revealed, but the message is going to do the same thing now that it did then, whether it's spoken or written makes no difference. But I want you to ponder this for a moment. What would Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 have meant to the people in the first century. This is written to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. The people in Ephesus, the Ephesian Christians, had miraculous abilities. I know they did because when the church started there in Acts 19, Paul laid his hands on them. It says they received the Holy Spirit and they began to do miracles. We have that specifically recorded. Now, what were they to do with these miraculous abilities? The purpose of the miraculous abilities was so that they could preach. They didn't have a New Testament. They had to have a message. They had to conduct worship services. So what did this look like? 1 Corinthians 14 is kind of an instruction sheet on how to use miraculous abilities in a first century worship. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, he says that they were to speak miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Why? They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a New Testament. So the Holy Spirit let them speak. Verse 15 says they prayed with the Holy Spirit. Why? They didn't have Matthew 6 where they could go and look at a model prayer. And so the Holy Spirit was revealing a prayer to them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 15 mentions that they sang with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit was giving them prayers and songs and a message 
Why? They didn't have these things yet. The church was being established. They didn't have a songbook. They didn't have PowerPoint. I want you to think about people who had miraculous abilities, who were conducting their worship service that way. They were getting miraculous songs. And then Paul says to them, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What would that mean to them? I think that they would have taken it to mean exactly what they were doing. That is, the Holy Spirit is, we are full of the Holy Spirit, and we are singing that way. And so they're praising God that way. Today, the Holy Spirit is not going to work through us miraculously because we have the information. The message is there, and we can do it today. Now, somebody might say, Don, I disagree with you, because you can't obey the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If he said to them, be filled with the Holy Spirit, how would you do that? How would you obey that? I want you to consider a few other passages with me. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, Timothy was told this. Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift of the Spirit that is in you by the laying on of my hands. Now, what gift of the Holy Spirit was in Timothy that came through the laying on of Paul's hands? It was miraculous. What does he mean when he told him to stir it up? What he meant is, use it to its fullest. Use it. Don't, don't just sit there and do nothing with it. Use to its fullest the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14 shows that they could use their miraculous gifts or they could choose not to. He told them the Holy Spirit didn't just take control of them like you see on uh, some uh, programs for uh, religious groups today. The Lord said in 1 Corinthians 14, if you've got a miraculous message and someone else did, don't be talking over each other. Take turns. What that means is they could control it. 1 Corinthians 4.14 says, Neglect not the gift of the Holy Spirit that is in you. He told Timothy, stir it up. That is, don't neglect it. Use it. You've got it for this purpose. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, they were told not to quench the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I believe it is the opposite of Ephesians 5.19. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says not to quench. The word there means hinder or stifle. Don't hinder or stifle the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.19 says, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? This is written to people who had miraculous abilities. He's saying, don't quench it. Use it to its fullest. So, I'm of the opinion that in the original context in Ephesians 5.19, it's miraculous. In fact, I looked up every passage in the New Testament where the phrase filled with the Spirit appears. I think it's miraculous in every single one of them. And so if it's not in Ephesians 5.19, then it would be the exception. You see that in Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6. Now today, the only way we can be filled with the Holy Spirit is by filling ourselves with the Word of the Holy Spirit because He's not working miraculously in us today. Good question. Number three, what does Ephesians 5.22 mean? Somebody's been studying Ephesians, haven't they? Ephesians 5.22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does that mean? Wives, submit to your own husbands. The word submit... The Greek word, I looked it up, means arrange under, to subordinate, to put into subjection. And so wives are to arrange themselves under, 
subordinate, put themselves in subjection to their husbands. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Submit to your own husbands. A woman is not submissive to every man. She is submissive to her own husband. He says, as unto the Lord. A woman is to submit to her husband as she would to the Lord, as she would to Jesus Christ. Now, verse 25 says, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. I have always said, it is easy to submit to someone who loves you like that. Someone who would love you like Christ loves the church, he always has your best interest. He loves you to the point of laying down his life. It wouldn't be hard to submit to someone like that, would it? Now, there is a distinction in the Bible between men and women that goes all the way back to the beginning, the Garden of Eden. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 13 says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in, fell into transgression. Genesis 3.16, after the woman ate the fruit, after Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God said to Eve, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What does that mean? The curse that is put on the woman. What does it mean, your desire shall be to your husband? I looked up the word desire. It's from a Hebrew word. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.16, Genesis 4.7, and Song of Solomon chapter 7 and verse 11. This word desire in the Hebrew means longing for, an impulse for, an urge for. Leupold's exposition of Genesis says this, This is a feeling of need for security and affection and acceptance which creates an intense emotional dependence on the man. It would include the attraction that women experience for man, which she cannot root from her nature. Independent feminists may seek to banish it, but it persists in cropping out. I know that's not politically correct. I know that is not woke. But it's still what the Bible says. And so, what does this passage mean? It means that the husband is the head of the house, Ultimately, the responsibility lies upon him and that the woman is to submit to her husband and he is to love her as Christ loves the church. Number four, I've got to pick up the pace here. Uh, Psalm 34.7 says that the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and he delivers them. Does this happen today? Are there angels among us today? Number one, I want you to remember this is a psalm. And so it is poetic. It's still true, but it is poetic. I believe that this is an allusion to the protection that God gave Israel with angels when they were in the wilderness. And so he's saying, just as God protected Israel this way, God is our protector. Now, is there a sense in which God still protects us today? Of course. We may never know until eternity the full extent of God's providential watchfulness that he bestows upon us. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to His purpose. Verse 31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Talk about protecting us. If God be for us, who can be against us? He, now listen to verse 32. 
He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with us also freely give us all things? That is, He gave His Son for us. You think He's not going to give you what you need and take care of you? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Well, then the, the question goes on to say, are there angels among us today? This has been a popular belief in our culture. I remember um, growing up, there were a lot of TV programs that had angels. Uh, angels among us, I think, was one of them. And there was an old Michael Landon show. There were several programs that had angels on them. Uh, and it's been a popular idea that we have guardian angels. I remember that um, a verse that commonly has been brought up to me is Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10, where the Bible says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of the Father who is in heaven. And people have taken this to mean, don't despise a little one, they're angels in heaven. Babies have guardian angels. Uh, I saw a TV program one day where it was showing this idea, and it showed an angel, and he swooped down and pulled a baby out in front of a car and, and things like that. But notice what Matthew 18.10 says, Their angels do always behold the face of the Father in heaven. Whatever these angels are, whatever this is referring to, they're not swooping down in front of cars. They are always in heaven beholding the face of the Father. I think Psalm 34.7 is looking back to when God miraculously protected them by an angel, and he's alluding to God's protection. I think in a similar way, Hebrews 13 and verse 2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for uh, by doing so, some unwittingly have entertained angels. I've heard some Christians say, oh, you never know, you might be a homeless person, could be an angel. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Those things happen in the days of the miraculous. What he is saying today is significant things happen. Remember that? That happened. And so it is not that uh, you're going to run into an angel in a fast food restaurant tomorrow. That is not going to, to happen that way. Okay, number five. This came from one of the kids and it's a good question. Where did Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Seth, find a wife? I am pretty sure it was eHarmony.com. Um, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Um, this is a good question. It's been asked a lot of times. A lot of truly strange answers have been given to this question. Biblical archaeology reviews suggested that there must have been, quote, other people out there when God created Adam and Eve from whom Cain picked a wife. What does that mean? There's other people other than the descendants of Adam and Eve. Where did they come from? I know that's not right because Genesis 4.17 says that Eve was the mother of all living. If you were a human being on the earth, you came from Eve. Genesis chapter 4 gives several indications that a significant amount of time had passed from the birth of Cain and Abel to the murder of Abel by Cain. A lot of time had passed. During that time, God had commanded Adam and Eve and humanity, uh, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, that is, have babies. Genesis 5 and verse 4 says, Adam and Eve brought forth other sons and daughters. Now, I want you to do a little bit of math. If Adam and Eve had one child every two years. 
And it was just one. They didn't have twins. If they had twins, the numbers go up. And then their children, they get married. When they're about 19, they start having babies. And they begin having children and so forth. It could be that at the time that Cain killed Abel, there would have been about 300 people on the earth at that time. And so Cain, where did he get his wife? He would have married either his sister or a niece. It would have been a relative. Now, some people have a problem with this. They say it implies that Cain was, uh, and others were forced to commit incest. God's law concerning incest was not instituted until the law of Moses came into effect in Leviticus chapter 18. It's about 2,500 years after the creation. It's generally assumed that the reason God outlawed uh, incest uh, at that point was because the state of human genetics, because of uh, sin, because of disease, Things had uh, gotten bad at that time, and incestuous relationships greatly increased the likelihood of birth defects and psychological problems and so forth. So that's the answer. Cain would have married a relative. Number six, is there any evidence that animals were created as speaking creatures? No, there is not any evidence. Uh, the Bible doesn't say one way or another, so there's not evidence. There's, it's just a guess, one way or another. Now, there's only two cases in the Bible where animals spoke. One, of course, is the serpent in the garden. The other, of course, is Numbers 22. That's Balaam's donkey. People have asked, well, if animals don't normally speak, then shouldn't Eve have been rather shocked when the serpent started talking to her? I've always thought the same thing about Balaam's donkey, but he just has a conversation. And um, he says to the, the donkey, and the donkey says, why are you beating me? And he says, well, I'll tell you why. I, I think I would have jumped off the donkey and run, but he just has a, a conversation. Um, I know that there are some animals today who have the ability to mimic speech. Uh, think about a parrot. Um, I'm pretty sure that my cats have said some ugly things to me. In fact, um, they gave me a look today that if they could speak, it would have been a very ugly word. But uh, animals are like that. Um, is it possible, I don't know this, is it possible that animals had uh, some limited ability to speak? Satan entered one of them to communicate to Eve. Uh, the text says the serpent was clever when it spoke. It made sense to the woman. Uh, did the serpent somehow cooperate in this? I don't know. God punished the serpent, so was the serpent guilty in some way? I don't know. Uh, I know this sounds kind of far-fetched, uh, but we should be careful about limiting what God did in the perfect garden in the beginning. The answer is, I don't know. There, there's really not evidence, but it certainly is an interesting question. Number seven, was there any historical significance to Genesis 38, 28 through 30, when the birth order of Perez and Zira changed. I read that and I thought somebody's been studying their Bible because that is an interesting question. You read about Perez and Zira in Genesis 38. I'm going to back up and tell you the story of their parents before I answer this question. Perez and Zira's mother was named Tamar. Their father was named Judah. Tamar and Judah. Now I want you to get this. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. So the father-in-law and his daughter-in-law had twins together. Now, to put this in perspective so you can get this in time, 
you remember that there were three patriarchs, three heads of the family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Iskar, Zebulun, Dan, Asher, etc., etc. The fourth of Jacob's sons is Judah. You might remember that King David was from the tribe of Judah. You might remember that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. That's why these people are significant. At the time that these two twins are born, it's about five or six hundred years before David, King David's born. It's about 1,600 years before Jesus is born. So to put this in perspective. Anyway, Judah had a son whose name was Ur, E-R. Ur marries Tamar, but he doesn't have any children, and he dies. And so Judah gives Tamar his second son. His name is Onan. He's going to be a surrogate for his dead brother. The law of Moses had something called the Leveret Law of Marriage. Leveret literally means marriage with a brother-in-law. And so it was the marriage with a brother-in-law law. This law required that if a man and a woman are married, and the man dies and he doesn't have any children, then, ladies, you have to marry his brother. And his brother will be a surrogate to give you a child, and then he doesn't uh, sleep with you after that. But this uh, child who is born will receive his portion of the inheritance. Ur dies, he gives her Onan. Onan doesn't want her to have a baby, because if she has a baby, that portion of the elder brother's inheritance goes to that baby. And that's a big portion. The elder brother got the biggest portion. If he doesn't have a baby, then the other brothers get more money, more inheritance. So Onan doesn't want her to have a baby. So Onan does not fulfill his duty. I don't want to be graphic. You can read about this in Genesis 38 and verse 9 if you want to. Well, because of this, God kills Onan. So I want you to get this. Now Ur is dead. Onan is dead. And as a result of this, um, Judah, he doesn't want to give his third son to Tamar because he thinks, you know, she's a deadly woman. And so what he says to her is this. My third son, Shelah, he's young. So you just go home. When he's old enough, I'll let him perform the, the lever. He can be the lever for you. And so she, really, he's not going to do it at all because he doesn't want to do it. So he sends her away. Tamar hatches a plan. She plans to trick Judah into sleeping with her. And so Tamar covers herself with a veil so that Judah won't recognize her. And she sits on the side of the road at the entrance to Enaim. She knew Judah was going to pass by as he was coming home from the sheep shearing festival. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? So Judah sees her and he propositions her. And he doesn't have payment at the time. You can understand what's going on. And so he gives her his seal and a staff as a pledge. I'll pay you later. Here's my staff. So later, Judah sends someone to find Tamar and take care of the payment. But he can't find her. A little more time passes, and Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. He believes she's been promiscuous. And so as the head of the family, he's going to take care of this. The honor of the family, he's going to have her burnt to death. They go to get her, and she then produces his seal and staff, and Judah says, ah, 
he realizes what's happened. And so Judah announces Tamar's innocence, Genesis 38, 26. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give to her Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again in a sexual way. Now, what does this mean? She has twins. Their names are Perez and Zerah. Genesis 38, 28 says, And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put his hand out, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand and said, This one came out first. See, birth order was very important to the ancient Israelites. The oldest brother was uh, the preeminent one. He got the larger portion of the inheritance. And so in the case of twins, they would mark which one was first. She saw his hand. She put a red cord on it. Verse 29 says, Then it happened, as he drew his hand back in, that the other brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. What we know is that the bloodline of Christ came through Judah. But listen to Luke chapter 3. This traces the genealogy of Jesus. Luke 3.23 says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Verse 33 says, The son of Perez the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Why does this have significance? Because it is the bloodline of Jesus, and he came through Perez. All right, I'm going to do one more, and I'm going to stop. I know I'm a little bit long, but please bear with me. Let me get this one more. Number eight, some people think that you can sing songs of praise to God with musical instruments, as long as it's not on a Sunday and it's not in the worship service. Can you please speak to this? I got another question that was similar, so I'm going to combine them. The other question says, would it be wrong to listen to gospel music outside of the worship service if it has instruments? So one question says, can you go home and sing religious songs if it's not in worship? You know, you get your band and your guitar, your piano, and you sing religious music. Is that okay? And the other is, can you listen to religious music? So if you want to turn on the Christian station and listen to a Christian uh, rock or something like that, would that be wrong? Um, both of these are good questions. I want to make several observations. Number one is this. In the New Testament age, it is always wrong with God. It is always wrong to worship God with instruments. There's no authority for it. And so if it is worship... It is wrong. Now, the question says, can you sing songs of praise outside of worship? You see anything there? Can you sing songs of praise? If it's a song of praise, it's a song of worship. In fact, I think, I, doesn't our songbook say songs of praise on the, on the cover? I think it does. Uh, one of the old songbooks does. The idea is, these are songs of worship. So, can you worship God with music outside of worship. Even the question implies that it's worship. If it is worship with the instrument, it's sin. It's not the fact that it's Sunday that makes it worship. It's not the fact that we're in this building that makes it worship. It's not even the fact that we called the service to order that makes it worship. The act is worship. Now, 
I also want you to keep in mind that these songs are designed to worship God. They're written to worship God. They're intended to worship God. When Christian bands perform these things, they intend them to be worshipped. They view them as worship. The words are words of worship. I looked up uh, some popular uh, Christian songs on uh, GodTube last week. Let me read you some lyrics. This is from the top 25 songs. Number 18 is called Only Hope by a group called Switchfoot. It says, So I lay my head back down, and I lift my hands, and I pray to, to be only yours. I pray to be only yours. I know now you're my only hope. He's praying to God, and and appraising Him and saying, you're my hope. It sounds like worship. Number 14, Healing Rain by Michael W. Smith. Only you, the Son of Man, can take a leper and let him stand. Number 10 is called I Surrender by Hillsong. Like a rushing wind, Jesus breathed within. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way in me. In fact, it reminded me of a song we sing, Let Him Have His Way With Thee. Like a mighty storm stir within my soul, Lord, have your way, Lord, have your way. Number five is the great I am. The band is called New Life Worship. I thought it was interesting. Even the band is called worship. The mountains shake before me. The demons run and flee at the mention of your name, King of Majesty. There is no power in hell, nor any who can stand before the power and presence of the great I am. These songs are directly written as praise directed toward God. Number two, I want to make this distinction. The fact that a song mentions God doesn't necessarily make it a song of worship. Now, what do I mean by that? Many songs mention God. You know, there was a very popular song um, when I was growing up called uh, God Bless the USA by Lee Greenwood. I don't believe that was a worship song. The fact that he simply mentions God. When I sing Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah, it's clear it's a song of worship. When Lee Greenwood sings about America and mentions God bless the USA, it's clear that it's not a song of worship. But what do you do when it's not so clear? What do you do if you're, I don't know about this song. Some brethren have taken this approach. They say that if a song mentions God, they feel like they can listen to it. But if a song is directed to God, that's where they draw the line. Maybe that would be a helpful approach. I want to give you some things that, um, four things that I personally consider. Number one, if a song is a song that I perceive to be worship and it uses instruments, I don't listen to it. Number two, if it's a song that I believe that the singers intended to be worshipped, uh, they believe that they're engaged in worship, I don't listen to it. Uh, I don't want to take pleasure in false worship. Uh, it's difficult for me to hear people worshiping God in a way that he finds offensive and unacceptable, and to um, do that for my enjoyment. Number three, I think about my influence. Uh, if I'm teaching that worshiping God with an instrument is sinful, but my friend gets in the car with me and we go to lunch together, and he hears me listening to Christian rock in my car, that's going to send a strange signal to him, uh, and it's going to have an influence, an uh, effect on my influence. And number four, a great deal of Christian pop music not only uses instruments, but it also teaches error. And so that's something that you've got to keep in mind. So, all right, I'm going to stop there. I've gone longer than I intended, but thank you for your patience. Thank you for the questions. I always like to extend the Lord's invitation. If you're here tonight and you need to obey the gospel, 
you have the opportunity to do so. You become a Christian according to the New Testament pattern by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. If you need to do that tonight, we are ready to assist you. If you're here tonight and you're a member of the Lord's Church and you desire prayers on your behalf, we would be honored to do that as well. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.